Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this edition, we're focusing on Black Lives Matter as a global movement. The killing of George Floyd in the United States has ignited a global conversation about racial justice. Today, we'll hear about how that debate is playing out in Africa, South Asia, and in Europe. So could Black Lives Matter change not just America, but the world? Over the past few weeks, the world's got used to images of passionate demonstrations on the streets of America and protests against police violence and racial injustice. And the message of Black Lives Matter is resonating across the world. In Britain, there's been an increased focus on issues around policing, jobs and educational opportunity for ethnic minorities. There have also been conversations about how much of Britain's historic wealth has its origins in the slave trade. In the city of Bristol, the statue of Edward Colston, a slave trader, was toppled into the harbour. Other countries are also questioning the place that historic symbols of racial injustice have in today's society. In South Africa, the Rhodes Must Fall movement began a few years ago, targeting the statue of Cecil Rhodes, a key figure in the history of British imperialism in southern Africa. People say that it's just a statue, that it's dead, but we see the spirit every day. We see the the British culture, the standard in the management of this institution every day. Social media has been a way for people across the world to express support for the Black Lives Matter movement. The Indian actress Priyanka Chopra posted a quote of George Floyd's final words, please, I can't breathe, on Instagram. But some question if that amounts to real solidarity. Indians have been reflecting on their own country's problems with police violence and unjust treatment of minorities, as well as social and commercial assumptions that reflect racist mm-hmm. stereotypes. Wow! Such as advertisements for skin lightening cream. Whitening cerebral ocean, Nivea. As a journalist, the Black Lives Matter movement strikes me as a potentially world-changing moment. After more than 500 years, the West's centuries-long domination of world affairs seems to be coming to a close. And the current demands for racial justice that we're seeing around the world are, in some ways, a challenge to the social and political power structures bequeathed by the colonial era. On the other hand, the world's major rising power, China, is itself often accused of oppressing minorities in places like Xinjiang and Tibet. So, it's complicated. To help me navigate my way through those complications, I'm joined by an excellent panel. From South Africa, we're joined by Delhi Olajede. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist from Nigeria who divides his time between South Africa and New York. We're also joined by Divya Cherian, 
Professor of South Asian History at Princeton University in the US, and by my FT colleague, David Pilling, who recently wrote an excellent article on Black Lives Matter as a global movement. I started by asking Delhi Olajede whether people in South Africa and Nigeria are following the current protest movement in the United States. I think everybody cares very much, which is not too surprising, given the global role that the U.S. has played for a century, particularly from 1945. So I think that there is a certain aspirational quality to America that the rest of the world largely responds. To my thinking, it has always tried hardest than any other country to try to fix its problems. And so there is a sense now, I think, given the combination of the pandemic, that perhaps America is no longer the place that the rest of the world should be looking up to. Now, I don't get the sense that people feel that America's problems are more severe than theirs. It is just that America is no longer generally being seen as the shining city of the hill whose example is worth emulating and striking for. So America's image has taken a big hit, but I suppose you could argue the opposite, that America's been through these periods of turbulence before, but that this is in a way a hopeful moment because it suggests that things may improve. And that I, I guess if you're a, a, you know, an African looking at how Africans are treated in the rest of the world, there have been terrible stories coming out of China and, and so on. And Lebanon and, uh, you know, the United Arab Emirates and Europe and so on. Yes, that is true. However, none of these other countries is held in the same esteem that America is. There is a good reason why you don't have tens of thousands of people in the streets protesting China's incarceration of a million Uyghurs, right? Because nobody holds China to those standards. Whereas America is different. The idea that a society's principal goal is to strive for improvement, with that phrase, a more perfect union, I think there is a great appeal to it. So America has gone through this process before, 1960s especially. uh, The civil rights movement was kind of like the, paradoxically, the height of America's moral power in the sense that everybody could see a country fixing itself. This time, everybody can see a country falling apart and people scrambling to find a way, which is not at all clear. Now, in the last week, there is a sense that the country has shifted decisively against Donald Trump. But the fact that you could not find a single person who's willing to put money that Trump would definitely lose says a lot about the dysfunction of the United States. What is hopeful, though, is that probably for the first time, the majority of people demonstrating in American streets and in the streets of the world's global cities are white people, or at least people who are not black. So this is no longer seen as simply a black fight for rights and for survival and for justice and for equality. It is now seen by these new younger generations as a human fight. And so 
That is something hopeful and different, uh, but I think the jury is still out as to whether this is going to last or whether it dissolves into something else. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we've noticed, you know, here in the UK is that it sparked not just a debate about the United States, but also about our own society. Is there any analogy to that? Is that happening in South Africa or Nigeria? Not strongly so. The South Africans, I think, are suffering from the sin of familiarity. There is nothing going on in America with which they're not intimately familiar in their own country. So there is a, a, certainly a flash of uh, recognition and probably a lack of surprise, per se. But in a place like Nigeria, my sense is that the goings-on in America have provoked a kind of introspection, a certain degree of whataboutism that, you know, in Nigeria, we're actually worse than this. Uh, There's a lot of violence and lack of security, 13 million kids out of school, Boko Haram violence, violence against women, laws that outlaw homosexuality. And so there's there's a feeling, I think, generally in Nigeria, that we have no right to be criticizing the Americans. So that's a kind of a qualitative difference, I think, between the reaction in South Africa, which is that of, oh, yes, we know this only too well, versus the Nigerians who are saying, you know, you have no right to criticize because your own situation is so much worse. Stevie, I was going to ask you, uh, so similar question to Dele. I mean, what's been the impact of this uh, in India and South Asia? Are people following it? Yeah, the West and America in particular enjoys such a hegemony in terms of the media, in terms of celebrities and popular culture. So yes, it is being followed. But I would say that there's a range of responses. As for me, in my community of historians, uh, I think many have been struck by the parallels here, one of which is the police brutality, which, of course, there's a long history of it in both countries. But in India, also in recent months, images, videos have been pouring out of police viciously beating first protesters who were out on the streets against uh, Modi's new citizenship law. And more recently, once the coronavirus lockdown began, migrants or others who might be outside and not indoors uh, due to extreme need or some who were walking home by foot hundreds of kilometers. And even in uh, recent days, uh, a father-son duo were beaten so viciously that they died in police custody. So this has been a striking parallel. And for historians, I think some of this speaks to a shared history with the U.S., one strand of which is colonialism. So British colonialism, uh, for example, is what introduced uh, the police force, its structures, its rules in in all of South Asia, which uh, after independence, uh, sadly, have not gone away. And in the case of America, its own uh, colonial occupation of the Philippines, as well as its uh, imbibing of French uh, counterinsurgency techniques um, uh, during its time in Vietnam, historians have shown came back to America, uh, as did uh, the uh, militarization of the police more recently due to uh, America's forays into Iraq and Afghanistan. Other than that, there's, of course, the more popular response, uh, where especially celebrities who have huge followings on social media have tweeted out that they cannot breathe, which is a whole other conversation in terms of double standards. 
Um, so, but certainly the protests have been a sort of a mirror, just like uh, I think Delhi was starting to say, in which South Asians do see the problems of their own societies. But how common has that reaction been? Because, I mean, obviously you can see these parallels, but there's I've, some criticism I've read, albeit from a distance, that some of the tweeting in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, say by Indian celebrities, has been actually rather unreflective in the sense that it's you know well-intentioned and all that, but doesn't actually particularly look at any parallels with discrimination in India itself. Exactly. There has been a range of responses. On the one hand, you have uh, people who are sort of been speaking for justice equality consistently in India and abroad who have spoken up and some have even gone on the streets to protest. Then there is the, you know, sort of the Trump supporting Indian in America and in India who is happy with structural uh, discrimination uh, in every society. And somewhere in the middle are these people who are supporters sometimes or otherwise complicit or silent when it comes to exactly all of the things you pointed to, which is uh, Islamophobia, uh, discrimination and violence against uh, India's former so-called untouchables, uh, today known as Dalits. And there's tremendous anti-Black racism in South Asia that uh, many African students who study there today experience. There's immense colorism where beauty and sometimes status are associated with skin color and, you know, uh, fairness creams, uh, etc. are very popular there. So there is a, a huge hypocrisy, which has been called out by numerous commentators. Uh, you know, these same celebrities who are happy to pose with uh, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi in these selfies, etc., are now all about, you know, how they cannot breathe. I mean, they could breathe perfectly well when literally Muslims were being lynched for the past five years. Even though I think these protests have highlighted how unequal America is and the problems that there are, what has been remarkable to me is how America's mainstream has embraced the demands that are being called for. Even if some might call it lip service, those steps and announcements have been made. It is hard to imagine that sort of a response, at least in India, to similar calls against violence, against discrimination. Most people just look the other way. Are there any signs of change? I mean, I did read, for example, that some skin lightening creams have been taken off the market in India. Yes. So um, my understanding is that that famous cream called Fair and Lovely is owned by Unilever, which is a multinational corporation. So it is, in fact, more subject to global criticism and criticism in the Western arena. And also the fact is that the skin whitening cream is still being sold. It's just changing its name. So the problem is still very much there. So it's not really organic from India. So no, I don't see any major change. And David, um, you're Africa editor, but like all of us, you're stuck in home base for the moment. Watching the impact of Black Lives Matter here in Britain and in Europe, how much has it kind of entered our discourse, do you think? It's entered it a lot, I would say. If you look at Europe, you saw marches, sometimes marches tens of thousands strong in, in Germany, France in particular. I called a Nigerian author who's living in or is um, stranded in Holland at the moment. He was amazed to see demonstrations not only in Amsterdam, but in much smaller cities. A city like Tilburg had a big demonstration. In France, you've seen their own Black Lives Matter movement. I think this is what's important. As we've already said, this issue has tended to kick off discussions that are pertinent to particular countries. So in France, there was a French Malian called uh, Adama Traore, who died in a police van four years ago. And that case was in a sense sort of resurrected and became a rallying point for demonstrators. Um, in Poland, um, not a country with a huge immigrant population by any means, but there was quite a lively discussion about what black people should be called, with some people thinking that the word that's used 
which is derived from a word that linked to the English word more, was a sort of a racist terminology where others insisting that it was, um, it was perfectly neutral. So, so again, a discussion kicked off. In Britain, in England, symbols have become important. So you had the toppling of Edward Colston, a slave owner in Bristol. You've had questions about the statues of everyone from Churchill to Gandhi. Oriel College in Oxford has now finally buckled to years of pressure and says that it will remove the statue of Cecil Rhodes, an industrialist whose policies in South Africa, some have linked very strongly to the emergence of apartheid later. And I would say, and also in Britain and probably elsewhere in Europe, you've had companies, universities, looking at their admissions policies, looking at their senior staff, and really using the Black Lives Matter movement as a kind of a conversation starter, in a sense, a kind of a scorecard. How well have they done? And many, I think, are finding that they haven't done as well as they might have done. Yes, indeed. I mean, I noticed that on the moment on the FT's own website, the most read article, look at the connection between well-established British companies and slavery in, in history, which is not something I think we would probably have thought of commissioning even a year ago. Do you think specifically that debate in the UK about slavery is opening up? I think it is opening up. I think there'll be a look at our school curriculums. I don't remember being taught much about slavery in school. I mean, I had a teacher who was professed to be a Marxist, and so maybe he snuck in a bit um, uh, despite the official curriculum. But I don't think that we look at our issues of imperialism through a kind of a particularly critical eye. And I think there will be more attempts at, you know, what some people would consider kind of more inclusive history history that looks from different perspectives. And, and Divya, I mean, we talked about how things are being perceived in India itself, but how is, are things being looked at by the Indian community in the United States, which is, uh, you know, compared obviously to the African-American community, relatively recent, also many high-profile successors, CEOs and so on. Do they feel a sense of solidarity with the Black Lives Movement or a sense of distance? Is it possible to generalize? Um, no, actually, that's a great question. I think it's impossible to generalize. Um, there have been a range of responses. Uh, I myself went to a protest. I mean, I was shocked, first of all, by the size of the protest in this sleepy town of Princeton in the middle of the summer vacations. But I saw a range of people, including many South Asians uh, of all ages, young, old, uh, maybe somebody like me who's somewhere in the middle. And uh, there are also people who, who are sort of politically coming of age in this moment. So this is the question that has moved them to action. Uh, and these are young people of, of the South Asian community. Uh, then there's a certain kind of person who is sort of a, you know, like a mainstream Democrat, considers themselves a liberal, but who has been raised in a sort of household where there is a free, what can I say, demonization of Muslims, uh, sort of a clear idea that you cannot marry uh, a black person, a Muslim, or a person of the untouchable, so-called untouchable caste in India. And they are comfortable with that. They never challenge it. And some are even vociferous Modi uh, supporters when it comes to India. So they are very comfortable with illiberalism back home in India, even as they see themselves as staunch liberals in the West. Uh, so there's that sort of middle ground. And then, like I said before, there are the proud Trump supporters who very much identify with the Islamophobia that Trump often sides with. So Delay, a lot of the current controversies in the US and in, indeed in Britain are around symbols of racism and pulling down statues. And of course, you've seen that firsthand in South Africa as well. 
where they had the whole roads must fall movement uh, some years ago. How do you reflect on that in, in retrospect? Do you think it, um, it sparked a deeper change or not? So there is a sense of validation amongst the university kids in South Africa who uh, led the Roads Must Fall campaign, which was not widely accepted at the time. It was actually seen as some, somewhat extremist and militant. Now they feel that they're ahead of the curve for the rest of the world in the necessity for these kinds of atonement to be sought. Now, it remains controversial, even though South Africa, to be fair, has been one of the few countries that has managed some middle path in handling questions of this nature. So they may not change the name of Johannesburg, but the jurisdiction of the metropolitan area has an African name. Uh, So they've threaded a path which acknowledges the majority of the population that was previously completely erased from history without removing all the symbols of the ancient regime. So that's one thing the world may learn from the South African example. Uh, The other thought is that I am not particularly exercised by this pulling down of statues or whatnot. People say they worship their own stone gods, and eventually they decide which guns must come down from the pedestals. And so it's not a big deal. This is like idol worshipping, and people should just chill. It's not as important as I think, even though I don't think wiping out everything uh, is a solution. Now, in the early days of revolution, as you know, from the French and from everybody else, there is an over-enthusiasm, and people go to excess, and eventually the fever cools off a bit, and they pull back to the middle. That's sort of the way I kind of see it. I'm not particularly agitated at the moment. Yeah, I guess that they call it iconoclasm for a reason, don't they? But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> a lot of this, I suppose, is focusing for the moment on symbols. I mean, David, you mentioned roads must fall in, in Oxford and, and so on. Do you think there's a danger, if one can call it that, that there is an overfocus on very emotive symbols, statues and so on, but the, the much harder job of actual structural change then gets forgotten? Or do you, would you guess that this, the structural change will follow? The short answer to that question is I think there absolutely is a danger that one could deal with the symbols and think that everything's now settled. I think there is a parallel with the Me Too movement where discussion about Harvey Weinstein, his eventual prosecution, and all the stories in the New York Times and revelations about his actions triggered a kind of global discussion about women, about their place in society. And I think in the same way, this will and has triggered a global discussion that will in some cases lead to action. I think it will lead, for example, to universities pushing more open policies in terms of uh, rec- recruiting students from a um, diverse background. Just as the Me Too movement can't solve everything, neither can Black Lives Matter. I was thinking of South Africa, where you think about how much progress in a sense has been made in the more than 25 years since the end of apartheid. And you could argue that in some ways, over racism in South Africa has vanished or at least has dissipated uh, in all sorts of obvious ways. And yet if you look at the economic disparities, they're basically exactly the same as they were in apartheid South Africa. Now, I think you can 
blame some of that on a kind of what people call a structural racism. But I would argue that it goes deeper than that. These are the structures of the economy that were, yes, originally based on racist attitudes, but that are very, very hard to break out of. So if you look at the Gini coefficient today in South Africa, which measures disparity of income, if you look at that by color, you'll find that the black majority in South Africa is in pretty much as bad a situation, despite the fact that the overt racism, overt, I stress, has been removed. So there are deep structures that may have to do with more than just prejudice that may have to do with class structures, economic structures, uh, and things that are much more deep rooted. Now, whether the Black Lives Matter can sweep all that away, I'm very doubtful. So David made the point, talking actually specifically about South Africa, but also the parallel with America, that the thing is, it's much easier to eradicate formal legal discrimination and to get rid of symbols like roads than to change the underlying economic structures. What do you think? I'm inclined to agree with him in the sense that this is true of any society that is trying to go through transformation without beheading large numbers of people. Now, obviously, if you had a communist revolution or something, you just killed large masses of people, yeah. Or like the Chinese and starve 40 million to death, you'll get your agrarian reform and so on. But if you are trying to use peaceful evolutionary means to effect dramatic change, you are not going to move as fast. So I think that what's going to happen in America, first of all, that the tone in the public square is going to become gentler and more humane and more empathetic once they get rid of Trump. Now, we cannot underestimate how important that is. I think you will see some wholesale changes that will give people confidence to hang in there and improve the legitimacy of their system, whether it's around public health and improving public education and diminishing racism in large corporations and small enterprises and so on. All of that because of a chain tone would happen. But what you have in South Africa is a bit disheartening because they went through this enormous high of having an extraordinary collection of just incredible leaders who got them started to be replaced by, for about a decade, by absolute horrific uh, quality leadership that was very corrupt, uh, both morally and intellectually bankrupt. And so the frustration is coming from the fact that economic transformation in South Africa has proved so far elusive. And the governments since independence in 1994 have proved inept in one key area at least, which is public education, which is your only real shot at improving equality in society over a long period of time. So you have a combination of terrible schools and an unshifting uh, economic structure, which is going to lead to increasing frustration in South Africa in the foreseeable future and give rise to... Uh, you know, black militancy and nationalism. And Divya, I mean, I guess you're in a very interesting position to assess this question of symbols and structures because Princeton has just renamed its famous international school, which was named after Woodrow Wilson because of shame about Woodrow Wilson's record on race. You're also a historian. So what does your training as a historian tell you about the likelihood of deep structural change coming out of Black Lives Movement? 
I actually, uh, I think I disagree a little bit with uh, David because something about, and, and so here I would say it's a mix of my training as a historian and my instincts. I feel something about this moment feels different. It is not actually completely out of the blue. This movement has been building up since 2012, Black Lives Matter. So to me, the response this time has, even though there have been multiple deaths like this, to me, there's something has changed under the surface, which is what has caused this sort of, as I said, mainstream embrace of of at least the the moral plank from which uh, Black Lives Matter is coming. So, A, I feel that there is somewhere a change in orientation. Secondly, the slate of demands that is being asked for is not limited to symbols alone. So even speaking out of Princeton, yes, there has been a call uh, for many years now, actually, to uh, remove Woodrow Wilson's name uh, from the school and other such places. But at the same time, these same demands have been accompanied by calls for um, greater diversity in the faculty among the graduate students, and also a reckoning with uh, Princeton's implication in structures of power, which it must be acknowledged Princeton has acted upon. So um, uh, a number of efforts have been taken, uh, the most prominent and commendable of which is the Princeton uh, and Slavery Project, which is sort of a public history effort involving a whole class or two of students who worked through the archives uh, at Princeton to see what relationship Princeton had with black people, whether as slaves or as servants. And now this website exists for public access. There are little markers around the campus that point to the various historical figures who were black, who played a role in building the university, but who were never acknowledged. So again, that to you may seem symbolic again, but at the same time, I think uh, efforts have genuinely been made to increase uh, diversity on campus. And perhaps a lot more needs to be done, but I think the pressure is on. And as long as this pressure stays on, I do think that these are important steps, particularly in education, which then becomes a pathway to a wider structural change, which, yes, will be slow, but it gives me hope this moment. And that's it for the Rachman Review this week. My thanks to the three Ds, Delhi, Divya and David. And if you could spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the show and how it can improve. We're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com slash Rachman Survey. Also, if you'd like some inspiration about what to read this summer, I invite you to take a look at the FT's annual Summer Books series, where our writers and critics have chosen their favourites of 2020 so far, across subjects ranging from politics, economics, science and history, to art, tech, food and wellness. There are plenty of novels, poetry and audiobooks too, of course. You can find 200 books to add to your summer reading list at ft.com slash summerbooks2020. And please join us again next week You can find us in all the usual podcast apps. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.